Uh, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Now, we eventually get to a point where words have run their course. Perhaps it's a late night disagreement with the spouse. A furious swapping of DMs and text messages with a friend. An email chain amongst co-workers in the workplace. Or even the back and forth conversation that you are having in your own mind as you keep disagreeing and talking with yourself. We get to a point where it has to stop. As we come to Job chapter 31, we're starting to get that same feeling. Uh, I'll put up a slide here, and we've seen this in previous weeks. The bulk of this book, Job's narrative, and Job's story is the poetic discourse between friends, Eliphaz, and then Job, Bildad, and then Job, Zophar, and then Job. And if you haven't figured it out yet, even as we've jumped ahead now several chapters into the book, nothing is getting fixed or concluded in all this discourse. Job's friends are telling him he doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand his guilt. He doesn't understand his situation. And, and Job, in each response, goes around and around defending his integrity, declaring his innocence. And arguing against his friend's claims. Well, we come to one last plea. And we see that our main point this morning is simply this. Faithful followers of Christ know when to stop. There does come a point when everything that needs to be said has been said. There comes a point when it's just time to stop, listen, Wait and pray. And we are at that point as Job gives his one final uh, plea. Where he gives his final word. He puts out his concluding arguments and he settles on waiting. And, and we're in Job chapter 31. There are 42 chapters in this narrative. And for the remaining 12 chapters, there's relative silence. After this plea, in the next 12 chapters, Job has stopped talking. In the next 12 chapters, he listens. He only has five more verses of speech the rest of the way in total. Job knows that it's time to stop. So here is his last plea. First, we see in his plea the personal evaluation. Now, we might be wondering how Job would conclude all this poetic discourse. Will he finally admit his sin? Will he yell at his friends and tell them again that he's, they've given these windbag speeches? Will he conclude that these friends are toxic and that they should be canceled and then he's done with them? Well, no, rather in a self-reflective yet strategic way, Job summarizes and confesses that he's innocent. He sets up a list of sins that he's going to deny. So I'll put up another slide. And this breaks down the whole chapter. And I think it breaks down this way. In this last plea, Job argues that he's faultless. 
He goes back and forth between secret sins and societal sins that he says that he has not committed. Now, writers debate how many he actually lists. Some say 10, some say 14, some say 16. However you lump them together, Job seems to cover the gamut. Uh, One person wrote and argued that the list of crimes in Job's negative confession is neither systematic nor complete. It was not drawn up by an articled clerk. It's a poem recited by a miserable outcast on the city rubbish dump. Well, we'll cover one personal evaluation, one reflection, one category of sin more closely. But notice how he starts off in verse 1 of chapter 31. God's word records this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? You may have a translation that says maiden or young woman. Job starts off and he says, I have made a covenant. Now that's language we don't often use in our contemporary world. But he's declaring that he's made a promise relationship with God. He's vowed himself to God. He fears God. He pledges to follow God. And it might strike us a little odd, but Job begins his plea talking about sexual purity. Here's how one writer comments on this beginning verse. He, Job, has resolutely controlled his eyes to keep any sinful longing from entering his heart. In the Old Testament, the eyes were considered the gateway into the heart, for their gaze may arouse the deepest desires and so spur their owner to transgress God's law. The people were, therefore, enjoined to remember God's commandments and not prostitute themselves by following the lusts of their hearts and their eyes. Now, the language surrounding Job in this verse, his eyes and his heart, is very similar to Esau. Many of you may remember that it was Esau who sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance, his privileges. He gave up, kids, this big bag of money for a bowl of soup. He sold it all to his brother for a bowl of soup. Thousands of years later, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 would say that Esau was sexually immoral. Telling us, that sounds weird, but telling us readers that there is an intimate connection between our eyes, our heart, and our purity. So here in verse 1, Job starts off and he says that he has made a promise, a covenant with his eyes. He has not looked lustfully. He's been faithful. He's been pure with his life. But I want to hone in now on Job's longest denial of sin. He denies a lot of sins in this chapter, in this final plea, but there's one that's the longest. And I'd like to, us to read that in, starting in verse 16. Verses 16 through 23, the longest plea, the longest denial of sin relates to his treatment of the orphan, the widow, and the poor. 
So starting in verse 16, Job says this. If I have withheld anything from the poor that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for a lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I've raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder, and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. Now, our section here, it reads a little confusing at first. But our section here, it follows the pattern of Job 31 in total. And the pattern is this. God, if I did this, then I deserve this punishment. If, then give me this. That's the pattern. We see it again and again in this chapter. And here's a a helpful explanation that I found. Job engages in a self-imprecation that, in an Old Testament framework, God is expected to respond to him by either denying or upholding his words. This chapter is tantamount to someone saying, May God damn me if I committed this sin. In other words... If God remains silent, it is assumed that the person making the oath is innocent. Job is forcing the issue. God must respond to Job's oath. Or Job's protest against God's injustice would appear to be vindicated. So the personal evaluation, as we said, covers many sins. But providentially, on an orphan Sunday, we reflect in these verses with Job on our obedience to care for those on the fringes of our society and community. So look again more closely at verse 18. Now, you may have a translation that puts this verse in brackets, because the pronouns of this verse could be taken two different ways. First, it could be that Job had a father who taught him and modeled to him how to care for orphans and the needy. Because Job's dad didn't simply raise Job, but he also raised people in the community who were in difficult situations. Or it could be, the second option, that Job himself raised orphans and cared for the needy as a father figure to them. Which is quite remarkable when you think back on chapter 1 and he had 10 children of his own. So no matter whether it's him or his dad, These verses are the most biographical of the entire book. Job is telling us that he grew up in a home that cared for other people. He didn't hold on tightly to what God gave him. Now, we read back in chapter 1 just how wealthy Job was. All these possessions that he had. And he argues in these verses that we just read... He argues here that he always held his earthly treasures loosely. 
So verse 16, it says quite simply, he didn't withhold. Verse 17, he didn't eat with others going hungry. Verse 18, he didn't simply cut a check, but he had relationship with needy people. Verse 19, he didn't simply offer food, but he helped with their daily needs. Verse 20, he didn't leave people out in the cold. And like he said in 21 through 23, he's willing to be punished. If these things are not true in his life, he's willing to be punished by God. So I can't help, but as I read these verses, I can't help wonder, uh, in my own life, Lakewood as a church, could we make this same kind of defense of our life? Do we hold our possessions loosely? Do we withhold from the needy? Do we eat while others go hungry? Have we fallen into the trap of merely cutting a check or giving money? 25% of the budget goes to missions, praise God. Have we fallen into the trap of merely cutting a check and not being involved in relationship with needy people around us? Are we leaving people out in the cold this Thanksgiving? This chapter in Job's final plea, it helps create helpful categories to the faithful follower of Christ. Lakewood has a tremendous history and reputation. I don't know why this place didn't go nuts when Pastor Dave came up here and said that you have supported 166 orphans on the other side of the world. That's remarkable. So it should be celebrated what we're doing. But is it possible that your $35 a month that goes, well, our, our little guy's named Wango, the check that we cut to Wango in the Congo, is it possible that we do that and yet we miss people in our own neighborhood? Is it possible that there's people in the Brainerd Lakes area that we as a church have not served or cared for intentionally and well? Is it possible that we can fall into the trap of thinking we are accomplishing great things on the other side of the world, but in our very homes and neighborhoods and communities, we have failed to reach out? I think it's possible. So like Job, we too need to take stock and personally evaluate Yeah, sin and blind spots and error, but need, need around us. And if, unlike Job, we find that we actually are guilty, Job wasn't, but but maybe we are. And if we are, there is grace for us in Christ. We repent. We seek God's enablement to grow and to be different and to be more like Christ, to truly be the hands and the feet and the heart of Christ to the people around us. I don't think it's an accident that God has placed you and I in this community. And I wonder if there's more opportunity even within our own congregation than we realize. So, may it be true of us 
May the personal evaluation of Job spur us on to have an evaluation of our time, our money, our affections, and our mission in this world. Someone just fell, I think. (laughs) But we don't just see the personal reflection. Uh, Look with me and we see the final word. I get this directly from verse 40. Look at the end of verse 40 with me. It says, the words of Job are ended. Now, the end of this verse is sure, but it packs a punch. It's not from the mouth of Job himself either, but from the one writing and narrating the entire historical account to us. Allow me two quick points of application on this final verse here. First, the final word of verse 40 still connects us to community. Job's final word and last plea doesn't detach him from community. Job's realization that he needs to stop talking, it isn't at the expense of others around him, like Elihu, who's about to speak for six chapters straight. Rather, Job's final word is a completion of his side of the argument. There is a time to stop defending yourself. There is a time to reflect on your own life. There is a time to stop, to shut our mouths and listen as we wait and pray. However, this doesn't allow us license to cut ourselves off from community. Even if, like Job's friends, they've been less than helpful. Is there a time to separate? Yes. Is there a time to distance yourself from someone? Of course. But can we admit in our cultural moment, we are perhaps too quick to cancel someone or deem it a toxic relationship and move on? I think you can make the argument that perhaps in prior generations, people were too slow. And now I fear we're too quick to deem someone a nuisance, toxic canceled can we admit that unlike job or especially christ and his willingness to endure difficult relationships we often look for reasons to back out from community when people fail when our friends mess up or sin when they say the wrong thing or just even if they just rub us the wrong way canceled And this is an issue in the church. Because you know what's interesting about the church is you and I, we all look and talk very differently. So sometimes it's generational. Sometimes it's cultural. Sometimes it's it's, um, differences in, in employment and season of life. And what happens is A collective comes together unified in the name and the work of Jesus Christ. And then we don't quite get each other. Because our temperaments are a little different. Because this old guy says it a little different than this young guy. And instead of extending grace to one another, we make assumptions. We cancel. We cut them out. We say you're done. And it happens in the church far too often.
I think, if I'm honest, it happens in my life far too often. So I think we can fall into extremes and overreactions in categories like this. We don't endure abuse. But we do lovingly engage even our friends and others in our life even after they fail us, even after our last word. We lovingly press into people and community when they failed. And that's what Job has done. But the, this final word, it doesn't simply connect us to community. This final word, it teaches us and it reminds us of dependence. A question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this. Verse 40 says, the words of Job were ended. <laughs> but why? Why did his words end? Why didn't this dialogue simply go on and on and on for the rest of their days? Why weren't more arguments given? Why weren't more witnesses brought forth? Why did they just talk to churches and, you know, follow the example of creating subcommittees and voting on next steps? Why didn't they do that? Why weren't clever graphs, surveys, and three-year plans laid out and formulated? Now, none of these things are bad, necessarily, in and of themselves. But the final word demonstrates, and really it disciples us, it teaches us of our dependence. Time doesn't allow us to demonstrate how our minds have been brainwashed by Western independent thinking. Whether it be through the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, or the Industrial American Revolution in the early 20th century, we are, you and I, conditioned to believe that enough hard work, enough elbow grease, enough committee meetings, enough dialogue that goes on and on, well, we'll, we'll just figure it out eventually. We can do it. We'll just try harder. And all our efforts will produce what we always set out to accomplish. Now, don't get it twisted. Effort and hard work are biblical principles that should be celebrated. But the final word reminds us that our scheming and our talking and our many words don't necessarily produce results. The final word reminds us that there is a time. There is a time to wait. To bite our lip. To listen and to pray. There is a time to stop doing and ask God to work. There is a time to confess dependence, inability, and set aside pride, reputation, and the desire to fix it ourselves. And that's hard. That's hard for me. Because I think I got a lot of answers. And I think I can fix things. At least that's what I tell my wife and kids. I think we need to follow Job's example. This final word. A time to stop. Press into people. And to trust God and be dependent upon him. Well, lastly, I'd point us to the undeniable condition that we see in Job's plea. Read with me specifically verse 35. Job cries out, Oh, oh, that I had one to hear me, 
Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Job's undeniable condition is this. He has been given a terrible measure of suffering and pain in this life. And he's left with no clear answers. He's desperate to be heard by the Lord. He's desperate that his condition would change. He wants relief. He signs his own name to it. He's innocent. And this is his final plea. He wants things to get better. He wants someone to prove maybe that he's even been wrong. And as he cries out, questioning God's character and promises, we, New Testament Christians, have more information than our man Job did. In fact, we have direct commentary regarding suffering provided to us from the lips of our Savior, the God-man Jesus. So Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus offers these words right off the heels of informing his disciples that he's going to be killed and raised from the dead three days later. Peter, of course, you may remember our waffling friend. He rebukes Jesus and he tells him off on what a silly plan all of this is. Jesus informs Peter that his words are contrary to God, so contrary, in fact, that Jesus tells Peter he's talking like Satan, failing to set his mind on God's program and not man's. So after this private rebuke, telling Peter that his human intentions to stop Jesus are evil, Jesus turns to his disciples, as we read in 24 and 25 of Matthew 16, and he says, hold this world loosely. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Save your life by dying to your human methods, preferences, and contrary ways. Die to yourself and what you think life should look like. And only then will you truly live as you live not for the sake of yourself, but the sake of Christ. We are told by the one, Jesus, who lived, died, and rose again to give us new life. We are told by him that we will suffer. Following God, Jesus says, brings with it denial, crosses to bear, and following even when it's hard, even when there are no immediate clear answers, even when we hurt. Job didn't have this information. Now, there's something many of you have likely heard of before. It's called the prosperity gospel. A fraudulent version of the good news of Jesus that says, if you do good, you get good. Always, every time. If you give more, God will give you more. Always, every time. In some ways, it's no different than Job and his friends and some of their thinking. 
if you adopt a legalistic lifestyle, if your performance as a faithful follower of Christ meets the measure and the requirements, you will get blessing and you won't suffer. That's not simply the false doctrine of people like Joel Olstein, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, and so many more. My friends, it creeps into churches like ours. We start to think terrible circumstances won't come. Suffering won't come if we're right with God. The undeniable condition of faithful followers of Christ is that sometimes we do suffer, just as Jesus promised. Sometimes, despite our good performance, things blow up and go wrong and our life turns upside down. And then other times, in the midst of our seemingly poor performance, things seem to be okay. So we have to ask this question. Have we fallen into the trap? The same trap as Job and his friends. Have we failed to see the undeniable condition? The life we've been given as a faithful follower of Christ is our cross to bear. The life that we've been given is the relearned process of again and again dying to self and living for Jesus. The life that we've been given is meant to be lived for Jesus' sake, not ours. The life we've been given teaches us to hold on to Him when life blows up. I was reminded this week of a story, a fictional account of an old bunk. You should get this book. It's called The Hawk and the Dove by Penelope Wilcox. And this old monk, before he had been radically transformed by Christ, had a daughter. And he didn't know that. And he meets this daughter one day and he finds out that he's a grandfather. And like any old monk, he prays over his grandson that he didn't know he had. Well, I'll pick up there. The prayer. Oh God, protect you little one in this world. God keep you safe from harm. As he prays over the baby. Melissa, his daughter, watched the tiny pink hand grip around the grandfather's scarred, twisted fingers, and sadness welled up in her for sorrow to come, for the inevitable harshness of pain in life. You can't ask that, Father, and you know it of all people, she said gently. But let him travel through life with his hand gripping Jesus' scarred hand, as tight as it now grips yours, and the storms will not vanquish him. Basically, the prayer of the mother is this. When my little baby grows up, don't pray that storms wouldn't come. That's foolish. Pray that when the storms come, my little baby will hold on to Jesus. And it is no different with you and I, brothers and sisters. It is no different. 
Job's last plea is a discipleship tool for you and I in the lives that we've been given. Faithful followers of Christ know when to stop. We stop to personally reflect on the failures and blind spots that we have and rejoice in Christ's work on our behalf. We stop as we give a final word to listen to friends and to ultimately to God. And we stop living as though God is a genie to be manipulated. And we accept, clinging to Christ, we accept the undeniable condition of our broken world. But we profess, yes, the undeniable condition, but we profess and cling and celebrate, even on a Sunday morning, the good God who promises to be with us and in us as we cling tightly to him in navigating this life. That's the hope of the gospel. We have more information, more revelation. We have a Savior who said, you will deny yourself, you will suffer, your life is the cross to bear, but I'm with you. 